Hey, um, I love the fact that I'm getting to know more of you as time goes on here, getting to know more names, getting to know more personalities, getting to know who you are as people. So uh, thank you for those of you, many of you have made time to connect with me in the foyer or in the office or over a coffee someplace. And so let's keep that up. Um, love to have more conversations with more people. So let's uh, keep the conversations going. Today, we're going to uh, begin a new sermon series together. Uh, we haven't, you know, we've been kind of hitting various themes along the way as we came up to this point. Today, we want to start a, a new theme, but also a new series and a new expository series, if you kind of know the distinctions between those words. But the idea today is we're going to walk through the Gospel of John. Now, we're not going to follow, hit every verse of the Gospel of John, because that would take an awful long time to get through it. But over about the next 13 weeks or so, we'd like to hit some of the major themes of the Gospel of John, and we're going to take chunks of Scripture and just walk through those together. And we want to look at it through a particular lens, and the lens that we want to look at it through is, who is this Jesus? If the Gospel of John is all about Jesus, then who is Jesus? And we want to walk through that together. Now, that's an important topic these days. It's a current topic that we need to ask. We need to ask that question because it's important. When people are carrying the name of Jesus on flags and banners into protests, or when people are carrying flags, either metaphorically or real flags, that they put up on places that serve people, like maybe a soup kitchen or something like that. Or when people put up metaphorical flags saying Jesus that relate to uh, their particular worship center or crystal cathedral or whatever it might be. We need to ask, who is this Jesus that's showing up on signs and banners? And who is this Jesus that we follow? And so that's what we're going to look at. That's the lens we will use to walk through the Gospel of John. Now, we'll have gaps in this sermon series where we will maybe have the vision team uh, share with us what they've discovered from surveys and from their work together. We'll have other gaps in the series. So we might be doing this till after Easter. I don't know. But we'll walk through this Gospel of John for the next little while and make that our, our purpose here. Uh, it's, if we're going to look at who Jesus is in the Gospel of John, we need to ask ourselves one question, and that is, who wrote the Gospel of John? And um, it's an appropriate question to ask. Now, most of us are going to say, well, that's a no-brainer. It was John, the former fisherman, the close follower of Jesus, the brother of James, son of Zebedee, uh, the one who was there for much of the ministry of Jesus, the one who was there for the transfiguration of Jesus, one of the first ones to the empty tomb. It's that John we're talking about. And for the most part, no one would disagree with you, and that would be kind of the end of the story. But there are those who have questioned over the years who the author of the Gospel of John is, and the same was it the same writer as the writer of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, same writer as the book of Revelations, those sorts of questions. And really, the, the argument boils down to this. How could a fisherman, a simple fisherman, 
write such theologically dense texts? And yeah, on the surface, that's an important question to ask. And I think we do need to ask that question. But is it, so, is it such a big stretch to think that John, a fisherman, might have written this gospel? Well, we know that young boys of that era would have gone to Torah school. They would have spent a lot of time studying the Pentateuch, studying the Hebrew Bible. They would have memorized large chunks of it. And they would have known the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. They would have known the Torah. And so even as a fisherman, spending time with his devout father, Zebedee, in a boat, they probably would have talked about the Torah. They would have spent time, they would have time in their boats to think about the things of God and to talk about the things of God. And part of his education would have been from his father and from the rabbis of their village and that sort of thing. So they there was great opportunity for John to learn. And then he spent three years, something like that, with Jesus, directly being taught by Jesus. So there's another part of his education. Beyond that, after the resurrection of Jesus, he was now an apostle in the church, still a follower of Jesus, and he had a lot of life, probably spent a long time before he wrote this Gospel of John, thinking through what would be written, and he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's not a big stretch to think that a simple fisherman could write the Gospel of John. So we will assume through this entire sermon series that uh, the writer of the Gospel of John is that fisherman, brother of James, son of Zebedee, who we know and love because he was the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he calls himself in the passage, in these passages. And we will talk about that together. So we're going to assume he, that is who we're talking about. Um, so not much question there, but the, the theme that we're going to tackle today, the specific theme we want to tackle today, is one that's kind of basic to the rest of what we'll talk about. At a basic level, we want to understand what John says about Jesus. And one of the first and most important things that John says about Jesus is that he is God. And that's what we're going to talk about today, that Jesus is God. We're going to do this uh, by looking at the scriptures together. And I, I don't want to confuse you today, but I'm going to look at two different translations of the Bible as we walk through this stuff. Normally, I, I often use the New Living Translation for the stuff we put up on the screen and for what I will read from my iPad. Today, we'll go back and forth between the New International Version and the New Living Translation. I like the New International Version because it fits with some of the stuff that I memorized as a younger man, and it kind of flows well with what I, you know, my memory verses and that sort of thing. That's, that's helpful for me, and I think probably helpful for some of you. But I also like the New Living Translation for what it does with words like mankind, uh, mankind sounds a little jarring in our culture these days. And sometimes if we just say humanity or hum, um, humankind is the way um, the new NLT will put it, it sounds a little easier on the ear. So we'll flip back and forth a little bit between the two of them, but don't get confused by that. All right. John 1, 1 through 5, and I'm going to read from the New International Version here today. In the beginning was the word. Oh man, we could stop there and we could have a whole sermon, right? We're going to go on. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Wow, right there we've been given a theological education. There are words in there that are used in kind of technical theological ways. And you can read it just as it is, and it makes lots of sense. But there's words in there that are quite deep in their theological meaning. Words like those that are translated word, and beginning, and life, and light, and darkness. All those, special, all those have special uses and meanings in this passage. Now, we understand them quite clearly, but we, we can theologically understand them as well. So as we come to this passage, we're not going to dive into all of those words, but I, I do want to dive in for a few minutes on two words there. Logos, uh, the, the word that is translated word, which is, as many of you will know, is logos. And the other word that is translated beginning, which comes from the original Greek word arche, from which we get the word archaic. So you'll recognize that into the English ear, right? So let's just talk about those two words for just a minute, not at a deep level. But logos, of course, we know is that, that word that refers to Jesus, as we will see here in a moment. But it's that word of God, that reasoning of God. And then the other word that's probably a little less familiar to us is the word arche, which goes to beginning. All right? So if you think about that, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, what does it say? It says, in the beginning, God, in the beginning, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John here is hearkening back to that same language. He wants to tell us the story from the beginning. Arche, the beginning, the absolute beginning of all things. So as we come to this passage, we see that he's talking about the absolute beginning. It's not like our story begins or once upon a time or something like that. It's the absolute beginning of all things. Now, God, by definition, doesn't have a beginning. So we're talking about the beginning of time, the beginning of creation. And so both the Hebrew writer in the Old Testament and John, the disciple here in this context, are pointing us back to the same point in time, the beginning of all things. And he wants us to know that the logos, the word, Jesus, was there at the beginning. And we'll, we'll unfold that a little bit more as we read more of John here. But he wants us to know that Jesus was there at the very beginning of all things. Leslie Newbegin, a theologian and teacher, once said, and a pastor, he once said, if we ask the fundamental question of the philosopher, why is there not nothing? The answer is, that in the beginning was the word. <laughs> Catch that question. Why is there not nothing? That's a funny little sentence there. Why is there not nothing? Another way to put that is, why is there something rather than nothing? 
why is there a universe rather than just emptiness? So that's the philosophical question that gets asked by philosophers and gets asked by Newbigin. And Newbigin says the answer is, in the beginning was the word. A really good answer to that question. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But you might ask, well, how do we know that this logos is a reference to Jesus? Well, okay, we have to read on a little bit more to know that, of course. After verse 5, John speaks of John the Baptist a bit and talks about him as the forerunner of the Messiah, the forerunner of Jesus, and he talks about that there for a bit. And he doesn't want us to get confused. He makes it clear that John the Baptist was not the Messiah, not the Logos. But then he goes on to verse 11, 10 and 11. And there we read, He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. And then if we'll just skip down a couple more verses, we get the clearest picture of this pre-existent word, of, word or Logos that it is indeed Jesus, because it says there, so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So the picture John is painting here is that he wants to tell us the story of Jesus, right? The gospel is the story of Jesus, like that picture we have out in our foyer today. I hope you saw that as you came in to the, through the foyer today, uh, painted by Michelle Snively Jeffries. We see Jesus there in all of creation. He's there as a babe in the manger. He's there as the crucified Lord. He is over the universe. He's over the earth. He's over the people. He is there in every aspect of creation. And that is the picture that John is painting for us here as well. He wants us to understand that this book that he's written, this gospel that he's written, is all about Jesus. And so by the time he gets to chapter 21, he says, Jesus also did many other things. And if they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. So clearly, John is telling the story of Jesus. What he wants to establish right off the top is that Jesus is God. Yes, he will call him God's son. He will call him the Messiah. He will call him prophet, king, water of life, bread of life, shepherd, and vine. But he wants us to understand that Jesus is God, the Trinitarian God of Old Testament and New Testament. He's given us a spoiler here. Not a spoiler alert. <laughs> He's given us a spoiler because it took John a while to understand who Jesus was. When, Jesus, or when John was first called as a disciple of Jesus, he didn't know that much about Jesus. He knew some things, and he had some ideas about him, and he knew he was a rabbi worthy of following, but he didn't know everything about him, just like the rest of the disciples. And they kept discovering more and more about Jesus, and they kept understanding him better and better, and they waffled even on whether or not he was the Messiah, right? At times we see them really firmly planted on that, and other times they're waffling on it. They don't know. And so John is telling us up, up front, this is what I learned about Jesus. In case you're wondering, I want you to know 
This Jesus is God. That's what he's saying here in this first part of his gospel. Okay, now by now, some of you are sitting there going, okay, Keith, we get it, we get it. Jesus is God. That's Christianity 101. It is, right? And yet, we need, I need to be reminded of that regularly. We need to be reminded of it regularly. And there are things going on in our world that cause people confusion about who Jesus is and what, how we understand who Jesus is. Um, we have a lot of uh, confusion about how to read the Bible sometimes. Sometimes people read the Bible as just a, a rule book of do's and don'ts and things we should do and shouldn't do. We have others who uh, see the Bible as, as something that we argue about and, and make sure that everybody interprets the Bible just the way that they or I interpret it, right? We, we have a tendency as humans to do that. Oh, make sure you understand this passage just this way. Well, that's, yeah, we have that tendency among us, right? There are others who are deconstructing their faith. You've probably heard this terminology. Deconstructing their faith and tearing apart things that they used to believe and not wanting to believe everything they used to believe because they're struggling with how they see the Old Testament and what they were taught about the Old Testament and how they see Jesus in the New Testament and, and how they're, they're struggling to fit that together. And sometimes they wonder if Jesus is there in the Old Testament. But he is. We know that Jesus is there proclaimed in the Old Testament and the New Testament. A helpful tool on understanding how Jesus is proclaimed throughout the entire Old Testament is something that you might not expect. It's a children's Bible. Uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, if I got the name right on that. The Jesus, uh, it's, it's on a, an image there that Phil's going to put up for us in a moment, but let me refresh my memory on the, the uh, name of that book. It is the, is it there? It's not there yet. Nope, that's the Apostles' Creed. We're going to go back. <laughs> uh, sorry, I've lost it in here. What is, I think it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Thank you. Thank you. Good. I always get it. Thank you. There we go. So we've got the Jesus Storybook Bible. I just want to tell you, that's a good tool to use to remind us that um, Jesus is there throughout the Old Testament. The, the subtitle of that book is Every Story Whispers His Name. It's great. And so, you know, Old Testament stories about Noah uh, talk about how that was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. And stories about Moses remind us that's a foreshadowing of Jesus in the New Testament. And so that, that little book, you can read it to your children. I highly recommend you read it to your children. But there's something in there that as adults we will also appreciate, that Jesus is there in the Old Testament, and it's constantly there in the prophets, in the Psalms, in the Proverbs. It's there. Jesus is there. And we understand the Old Testament by understanding what it said about Jesus. Okay, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But um, in... Uh, so here's what happens when Keith lays his iPad over here and then scans through it and he has to find his way back into his iPad because his brain is not remembering all of his sermon. 
This is like, you know, you get to watch me put on my jacket in front of you or something. You'll bear with me. I want you to understand, though, that, um, oh, if, if it's not clear enough from a little children's Bible, that's where I wanted to go next. I want you to go to this passage, this uh, quote that says, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, well, you know what? We're going to go off the book. <laughs> Who knows where this goes? Stephen, you keep me in check, okay? Yeah. No, what I want you to understand here is this is pretty basic principles, that Jesus is, the, is God, right? And that's the thing we have to make sure we understand. And um, the, this was so important for the early church that for the first 500 years of the church, they spent time debating, they spent time arguing, they spent time formulating creeds. Now, you've probably heard that concept of creeds, that um, they spent nearly 500 years creating both the Apostles' Creed's Creed and the Nicene Creed. And these creeds are all about how we understand who Jesus is, largely, right? And so they spent 500 years just making sure they had it right, who Jesus is. And so we can read those creeds today. And scholars will tell us that the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed were dealing with specific um, heresies and unorthodox ways of viewing Jesus at the time, right? So the Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, the Gnostics wanted to say that Jesus didn't have a real body, And so you'll see in the Apostles' Creed that it says things like, Jesus was born, suffered, crucified, died. The Nicene Creed adds things like, he came down from heaven and was made human. Another early sect, the Arians, wanted to say that Jesus wasn't truly God, but rather was made by God. This is what the Arians believed. And so the Nicene Creed goes into great length to say that Jesus is begotten, not made, is of the very essence of God, that Jesus, uh, that before all ages, he is God from God, light from light, and true God from true light. That's what's going on in those creeds. Now, the writers of the creeds were not trying to create new doctrine or anything. They were looking at the scriptures that John and other apostles wrote And we're seeing in these passages that Jesus is God. And so, because John says Jesus is God and emphasized that, they wanted to emphasize that in the creeds. So the creeds are not biblical, but they can be helpful to understand how we as Christians have sorted this stuff out. And both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed Most churches today would say, yeah, that's a pretty good representation of what we believe as Christians and and what we believe as the orthodox faith, the real faith, right? And so those creeds can be helpful in our understanding, but they only are a representation of the scriptures. So John says, Jesus is God. Therefore, the creeds talk about Jesus being God. I'm back on track. I found all my notes. But if the children's Bible isn't enough to help you understand that, that this uh, sort of thing is going on in the Old Testament, let me read to you from 
Bruce Milne. This is a commentary on the book of John that I, I find very helpful. Bruce Milne wrote a commentary. And in there, he's quoting a guy by the name of A.M. Ramsey, who was a former Archbishop of Canterbury in the, Ang- in the Church of England faith. But um, Bruce Milne, a, a Baptist guy, he says, or, uh, quoting Ramsey, he says, Since Jesus is the eternal word of God... And since Jesus and the Father are one, and anyone who has seen Jesus has seen the Father, God is always Jesus-like. Christ, God is Christ-like, and in him there is no unchrist-likeness at all. God is Jesus-like. I think that's a helpful tool to think about as we understand our Bibles. I think sometimes we get it a little bit confused and do kind of the opposite. We have these preconceived notions about who God would be, this vengeous God, and then we overlay that on who we think Jesus is. But just the other way of doing it is much more helpful and is what John is pointing us to here, that the character of God is shown by the character of Jesus. So what we see in Jesus is who God is. God is Jesus-like. And so if we keep that in mind, we will understand the book of John. We'll understand the New Testament better. We'll understand our Old Testaments better. Of course, you know, None of this will resolve all of your questions about the Old Testament, and none of your questions about the New Testament, none of your questions about who Jesus is, because there is mystery involved in it. We're not trying to nail this down so hard and fast that you'll never have another question in your life. Over the next few weeks of studying the Gospel of John together, we're going to work through this together, and there'll still be lots of questions at the end of it. That's why it's called faith. That's why it's called mystery. That's why it's called living by faith. We do this because we are living a life of faith. All right, I want to wrap this up with kind of looking at one more verse of this passage. We've already read it, but I want to read it again. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Well, right there, there's enough meat again that we could stop right here and start a whole new sermon again, and we'd be here till sundown today. I'm not going to do that. What I want to do is just focus largely on one word, two words, full of grace and truth, but I, I mostly want to focus on grace. See, one of the words that best captures who Jesus is and who he was as he walked this earth is the word grace. Here the word translated grace is talking about some of the big reasons why Jesus came as a human. And so I've just pulled from the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance and have a couple of quotes from it here that I want us to just kind of look at so that we understand this word charis or grace a little bit better. Grace is used of the, uh, sorry, I'm going to go to this, yeah, volunteer, this is For the sake of us all, Jesus voluntarily underwent the hardships and miseries of human life and by his sufferings and death brought salvation to us. That's one understanding, one one meaning of this word charis in the New Testament. 
Voluntarily, Jesus underwent the hardships and miseries of human life and by his sufferings and death brought salvation. That's what grace means. It also means, and this is the other quote from Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, Charis is used of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ. And it goes on, keeps, strengthens, increases. But the point here is the merciful kindness of God. Grace is the merciful kindness of God. And that's who who Jesus comes to us as. The one who brings us the merciful kindness of God. See, we see that character in Jesus. We see him as he, and, and as we go through this Gospel of John together, watch for the times when you see his merciful kindness. When he gathers people together, regardless of who they are. When he spends time with sinners and tax collectors and, and women who have been caught in adultery. All of these things. We know that we see the merciful kindness of God. We beheld his glory full of grace and truth. These are great words by which we can live. Can we as followers of Jesus be full of grace and truth? Can we be full of that kind of grace giving that Jesus shows us in the New Testament? As we walk through this sermon series together, I pray that we might watch for the examples of Jesus showing this kind of loving grace, this loving kindness, and then learn from that as we go into our world and show each other loving grace. Can we be people of grace and truth? It's not easy. We know that. And yet, we want to be people of grace and truth. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray that your words come through here strongly today. I pray that your word that is there as the Logos, your word that is there as the Bible would impact our lives. I pray that together we might understand what it means to receive the grace of Jesus and then to give the grace of Jesus. Maybe that could be the lesson that we learn for our lives today. We pray all these things. In the Trinitarian name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.